0: Well, good morning, church. Good morning. We're told in the New Testament that we're to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to each other. And that last one we just sang was to each other, asking God's blessing upon our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout this room and those who are watching with us this morning. A blessing. A blessing. That God's grace may be upon you and his presence with you. It's a beautiful benediction taken right out of Numbers, book of Numbers. Imagine with me that you're standing admiring the sparkling, a sparkling new automobile. And there are some believe that this car is a result of someone's design. But here's how it really happens. Billions of years ago, all this iron and glass and plastic and fabric and leather and wires came up out of the grounds. Each substance fashioned itself into various shapes and sizes and holes evolved at just the right places and the upholstery began to weave itself together. After a while, threads appeared on bolts and nuts and amazing it may seem, each bolt found nuts with matching threads. And gradually, everything sort of just screwed up tightly in place. A little later, correctly shaped glass glued itself in the right place. And, and you see those tires? They became round over the years. They found themselves the right size metal wheels, and they sort of popped on. They also filled themselves with air somehow. And the thing began to roll down the street. One day, many centuries ago, some people were walking along and they found this vehicle sitting under a tree. And one of them looked at it and thought, how amazing. Let's call it automobile. Well, there's more. These little automobiles have an amazing way of multiplying themselves year after year, even changing ever so slightly to meet the demands of the public. Well, technically the process is called auto-mutations, auto-mutations. Now, I love that. That's Chuck Swindoll's biting sarcasm to show the absurdity of believing we exist by chance rather than by divine design. Listen, you were created by God. And the starting point of all human beings was not this random coming together of impersonal elements of matter. You were created with great care and planning. We saw that a few weeks ago when we spent time in Psalm 139. Well, this morning, I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis the book of Genesis, it's a pretty easy to find Genesis, the first book in your Bible. So you shouldn't have any problem finding that. All the way back in the Old Testament, the very first book. And I want us to see this morning from our few sections here in Genesis, chapters 1 through 3, that this is kind of the, the, the bottom line for us this morning. We who are made by God and were made for God often find ourselves running from God. We who are made by God and were made for God often find ourselves running from God. Now, why is that? Why is it that many people in Laconia and the lakes region and and, and really around around the globe run from the one they were made by and for? Why is it that perhaps even some of you in this room and those watching today from home are those looking for meaning and significance and rather than move towards the one who made you travel on the road away from God? Why is that? Well, look with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, and I want to look at the, that breakdown, that, that bottom line for us this morning, and look at the first truth, and that's this, we were made by God. We were made by God. And I'm going to lock in here on verse 26 of Genesis 1. But before I do, before I look at verse 26 of Genesis 1, I want us to see something in the wording uh, of what leads up to verse 26. And so, look with me. I'm just going to look at these phrases here. Uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 3. It says, And God said, Let there be light. Verse 6. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters. Verse 9, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. Verse 14, let there be. Verse 20, let the water teem with living creatures, let birds fly. Verse 24, God said, let, let the land produce living creatures. I hope you see the pattern here. Let, or let there be, and all of God's creation and then when we come to the creation of humankind there's a subtle yet significant shift look at verse 26 verse 26 follow along with me then God said let us now there's a little hint there of the Trinity, the triune God but he says let us make man in our image in our likeness now, we are uniquely different than the rest of creation. There is a, a striking, more personal touch when we come to the creation of humankind. We see it when, when, Jesus, when, when God took the, the dust from the ground and breathed life into it. Here is a deliberate, premeditated work of God who said, let us make man. You see, all too often our understanding of mankind begins at chapter 3 of Genesis with the fall of sin. And certainly, certainly the effects of the fall help us to better understand ourselves and others in God's rescue plan. We're going to be going there in a few moments. Yet starting out with the fall to sin and our understanding of who we are is like coming into a movie 30 minutes late. Getting a grasp, though, on why God created us in the first place, gaining an appreciation of the marvelous truth of being knit together in our mother's womb by the powerful hand of God really should take our breath away. And what does it say about the way we're made? Well, God says, let us make man in our image, and it adds, in our likeness in our likeness, which seems to suggest that in some sense we were made to to mirror God, to reflect who he is in the world. Well, in what ways should we mirror, reflect God? I mean, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? I mean, much has been written on this. I'm not going to be able to get into all of it. But in what way are we like God? Well, it can't be It can't be referring to God's physical attributes for scripture says that God is spirit. It can't mean that we have the capability of knowing everything or being everywhere present. God is eternal. We've seen that before. And we are not. He sees everything equally equally vividly at one time. We live in a succession of moments. So how are we like God? Well, we're not little gods. Let's get that right out of the way. We're not little gods. So how are we like God? What's it mean to be created in his image? Well, we're like God in that we have the capacities of personhood. For example, we're like God in that we are emotional beings. We are like God in that we've been given the ability to reason and think. We are like God and we have the the capacity to choose. We're like God and and that we've been given a will. We have the capacity for artistic creativity. We can draw and paint and and dance and build and sculpt and dream. We write lyrics to songs and poetry. We can make music and, and major theatrical productions. See, as image bearers, we've been given the capacities of personhood. Now, by the way, and you can check this out, Genesis 9, 6, and it's also in James 3. By the way, uh, human beings did not lose the distinction of image bearers even after sin entered the world. So, the image of God is what a human being is. Now, the point is obvious, but I'm going to state it anyway. Both male and female are image bearers. It tells us that in verse 27. And it, and it goes beyond my purposes this morning to address the equality of, of dignity And the differences of both male and female. But suffice it to say, in any home, any church, any culture, where men are elevated to a place of superiority and given a, a, a place of greater value over women, they have left the Creator's original design. In His image, it's an invitation to live out what God meant us to be, male and female. Well, what were we meant to be? Well, not only were we made by God, but secondly, this morning, we were made for God. We were made for God. There's a lot here to unpack. I'm not gonna be able to get into all of it, but but we can have this relationship with the creator. No other creatures can say that. No other created things where that is true. We have a relationship with the Creator. But I want to look even more into this. See, God's purpose in making us must have something to do um, with the fact that we're not frogs, we're not birds, we're not flowers, we're not trees, we're not porcupines, we're not even monkeys. Look down at verse 28. Chapter 1, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God's blessing introduces us to his purpose. Fill the earth and rule over. In other words, he's calling these image bearers to be image bearers throughout the earth. We're called to reflect the glory of God throughout the world. We're to reflect who he is. That's who we were made for. You see it in Isaiah chapter 43, uh, verse 7, uh, Isaiah 43, verse 7, God says, Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You see it there? For his glory. We were made for his glory. Now that's true of all creation in Psalm 19. But what the whole earth does passively to reflect God, human beings were created to do so actively. Now parents, think about this. We're raising image bearers. We're to draw out the image-bearing potential of our children. We have the responsibility to take that that runny-nosed toddler and release him into a God-honoring difference maker in the world. A reflection of God's character. It's true for for teachers, of of, of students, Their, their classrooms full of little image bearers who can potentially brighten the world by reflecting the greatness of God's character and grace. We were made for God. You know, this also suggests, since we're made for God, that we were made to live dependent on him. In Acts chapter 17, verse 28, I encourage you to read the whole context there in Acts 17. But in Acts 17, 28, it says, For in God we live and move and have our being. Do you see it? We function best when we live as God intended, dependent on him. And when we go through life without God, there's this this gnawing void in our lives. And sadly, we'll we'll look to other things to fill that void for significance and meaning that was meant only for God to fill. I mean, I have to ask you this morning, is God filling that void in your heart, in your life? Are you finding in God significance and meaning or are you chasing all kinds of things to find that significance and meaning? Heavyweight boxing champion uh, George Foreman in the late 70s, he, he struggled with, that, with this void in his life. And here was a man who went from poverty to wealth. And a few days before his fight with Jimmy Young in Puerto Rico, Foreman stood on the hotel balcony and wondered about the meaning of life. In spite of all his success, he said, I was empty. For 10 years, he had gone through the same routines, getting ready for fights, and in the end, another win, but for what? And he said, my goal for life is another W? Is that all there is to life? Winning didn't fill the void. Money didn't fill the void. He had more cash in the bank than than most could dream of. He had three homes, a dozen cars, and a ranch. Yet with all that stuff... He was still unfilled. And foreman went on to say, would another car make me happy? One more house? Some mysterious piece of the puzzle was missing, but I didn't know where to find it. And he says, more than once, I toyed with the idea of driving my car over the cliff. Where do you find significance and meaning? We were made for God. We were made for God. We function best as we live as God intended, dependent upon him. So we who were made by God, and we were made for God. And yet, thirdly, my my third point this morning is we find ourselves running from God. Don't we? We find ourselves running from God. Why is that? I mean, as we look around us in this world and we try to make sense of, of the craziness that's going on, We ask, why are things the way they are? Why this this moral pileup? Why the wreck on the freeway of the 21st century home? Why all the carnage in our cities? Why such evil in the world? Why do we struggle to get along with each other? Would you believe that it's directly related to Genesis chapter three? Genesis chapter 3. See, we don't live the lives we originally designed to live, and we don't live in the world we originally designed to live in. Church, it matters what we believe about the human condition. It matters what we believe about the human condition, which is why we're spending time on it this morning. What do you believe about the human condition? One time... I was sitting at a packed movie theater and I think we got the last seats uh, together as a family and I was sitting comfortably in my chair. And, and you know, this seems to happen to me more often than not. But I was sitting comfortably in my chair and this little guy behind me kept kicking the back of my seats. <laughs> I mean, throughout, constantly. And once in a while, I'd hear the grown ups say, no, honey, don't kick the back of his seat. I don't think I would have said it that nicely, but that's beside the point, I guess. Well, the little guy, he didn't care. He continued to kick the back of my seat, and, 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 and the one who was supposed to be the adult gave up. I mean, when you fly on airlines a lot, inevitably you get that kid, right, with just long enough legs to reach the back of your seat, and it makes for a very, very long flight. Now, that precious little bundle of joy behind me Is he essentially a good person looking to do good to others? Is that how or she comes into the world? I mean, that child that quietly sits in the back seat of your car on the way to Hannaford's and then suddenly acts up and has this hissy fit once you get inside the store, right? Is he bent on doing good and he's just looking for the opportunity to prove how good he or she really is? Is is that how kids come into the world? (laughs) You're going, not my kid. Or is he a flawed little guy with a flawed parent who all find it easier to do wrong things rather than good things? Are we what God intended for us to be? I mean, is our natural bent on doing what is right? What we believe here matters. Because if we think we're an innately good then we will believe that we can rescue ourselves from the mess within and in our society and in our world. See, the, then the, the answer to the problem of, of sin and, and all this that's going on in the world around us is to improve our environment. Or, or that we just need time to prove that we're good. No, no. What is our true north here? What is our fixed reference point? The Bible is clear that we do not enter this world with a moral blank slate. We're sinners from our very first breath. We sin because we're sinners. We're all guilty before God. Sin is universal. And so the first part of the Evangelical Free Church's statement of faith that we're tracking and going through to in order to move towards an affiliation there that's what we've been working through. The one on human condition says this. Article 3. We believe that God created Adam and Eve, but they sin when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. It matters what we think about the human condition, what we believe about the human condition. And we move from the dignity of man and woman of Genesis 2 to the rebellion of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 as they rejected God's rightful rule and sought their independence from God. Now, is that not the essence of sin? We put ourselves at the center of the universe, usurping the place of God. All right, let's look at this familiar true incident recorded for us in Genesis 3. Genesis 3. I want you to follow along as I read verses one and seven of Genesis chapter three. It says, now the serpent was more crafty or shrewd than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? This is no mythical uh, serpent here, this is true. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Ah, we see here the nature of temptation. I believe it was Oscar Wilde who said, I can resist everything but temptation. (laughs) Well, what can we learn from this true account about the nature of temptation that can help us to resist it? Well, a lot could be said here. I'm just going to give you a couple of principles. Principle number one is this. When our focus is on what is off limits rather than what we can freely enjoy, the appeal to sin grows stronger. You better believe it. When our focus is on what is off limits, what we can't have, rather than what we can freely enjoy, the appeal to sin grows stronger. Now the serpent here, which, which it says elsewhere in Scripture, the ancient serpent is the devil. The serpent here speaks only twice in this account, in verse 1 and verse 4, but his words are meant to throw off balance the trust relationship between Eve and God. Did God really say? First stage of temptation in which questions are raised about the word of God that will nibble her away her confidence in him. And it does for us too. Now watch Eve's perspective in her answer, verse 2. Verse 2, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Notice she drops what God said that it was, you may freely eat But God did say, she goes on, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it. God said nothing about touching the tree. Eve exaggerates this, making God out to be a little harsher than he is. And then she adds, or you will die. Now Eve's perspective here is all distorted. Isn't it like human focus, uh, human nature, that is, to focus on what you can't And don't have. And that's why the serpent Satan pounces on this. Says in verse 5. You know God knows that when you eat of it. Your eyes will be open. You'll be like God knowing good and evil. That's pretty heady stuff. Now by the way. The tree stood for something. It represented the capacity. To determine for oneself What is good and what is evil. God was forbidding. What the fruit symbolized. And so the serpent here raises doubts about the character of God. In essence, what he's saying to her is that God cannot be trusted to meet your needs and to satisfy you. And matter of fact, God is withholding something good from you. you see it? It's past week in temptation. Do you see it? See, at the core of, of temptation, it's a trust issue. Can I trust the all-wise God who made me And knows what is best for me. That when he says it's off limits, that I can trust him in that. And that that is what is best. Or do I think I know better than God? Eve's confronted with a choice. Should I trust God with what he says is good and not good for me? Or should I decide for myself what is good and not good for me? And I find it interesting, I don't know if you do, that even in the extravagance of Eden, could convince Eve that God's heart was good. Amazing. Adam and Eve had all the blessings of the land. They enjoyed uninterrupted fellowship with God. They were given meaningful work. They had perfect harmony with each other, with the environment, and with God. They could take freely of all of God's blessings. You see, even if we have all the good we would ever need, we would want more, right? That's what it says. That's what it shows us. And so I've asked myself, where's my focus right now? On what I I don't or can't have, on what I do have. What temptation right now has you focusing on what is off limits? See, the appeal of the temptation can be reduced when we embrace the goodness of God and the blessings that are ours to enjoy. So the serpent simply suggests that Eve reconsidered the creator's uh, prohibition. And all he did was get the ball rolling, rolling here. The seed of doubt was planted in Eve's mind. He can just let it play out from there. Which leads me to principle number two. I borrow this from the Evangelical Convictions book. Principle number two, the temptation of the serpent was not the cause of Eve's choice, simply the occasion for it. The temptation of the serpent was not the cause of Eve's choice, simply the occasion for it. Look at verse six. Verse 6 says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the, tree, of, the, of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Her choice to take and eat was based on the evaluation of things seen through her eyes, her appetite, and her ability to think. Oh, the wonder of choice here, right? Choices are made in the eternal attitudes. And it's her covetousness that set everything else in motion. What are you coveting after? Looks? Popularity? Someone else's spouse? Power? Wealth? What is it? What's appealing to, to, to your senses right now? What immediate temporary pleasure is enticing you to sin? Listen, don't linger there. And I ask, where's Adam in all this? Where, oh, where is her husband? Well, the text provides us with the answer. Follow along. Look at the end of verse 6. Adam says, Snake, this conversation is over. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Honey, honey, we can trust God here. He doesn't say, Sweetheart, don't buy the lie. No, he said nothing. He did nothing. It simply says of Adam here, Who was with her He silently, passively watched this whole thing unravel right before his eyes, and said nothing, and did nothing. He was deceived, New Testament tells us, Adam sinned willfully, and the price they paid was huge. We see the effects of their shame in verse eight. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. (laughs) Why are they hiding? Well, Mark Twain said, man is the only creature in all creation that can blush and the only creature that needs to. (laughs) The one who was made by God and made for God is doing what? Running from God. You gotta go, what was Adam thinking? Did he really think that he could hide behind some tree and God would not see him? I mean, it's kind of like the game I like to play with my grandkids. You probably played it with your grandkids or kids. I say, where's Adeline? Where's Logan? Where's Milo? Where's Ashton? And they all do the same thing. (laughs) They either look away or they cover their eyes with their hands, right? Right? I mean, if they can't see you, then you must not be able to see them. That's what Adam's doing here. I'm behind this tree. I can't see God. He certainly, who could see me? And so God, in verse 9, he goes, where are you? It isn't as though he can't see him. His question really is, Adam, where's your head at? Why are you running? Adam, where are you? It's the same question that he asks us. Where are you? Now, church, listen, this is a movement of grace on God's part. Could expel them from the garden be the end of the story. No, no, Adam, where are you? And Adam replies, verse 10 I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. No, Adam, just answer the question Where are you in this? And God leans in a little more to get Adam to answer the real question. Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Because he was not self-conscious of that before. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Now notice, Adam takes it like a man here. He mans up and he says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. (laughs) Blamed his wife. He says, I'm the victim here. She made me do it. It's not me, God. It's her. Actually, God, it's not her. It's you. You put her here with me. It's kind of your fault. God gets blamed for lots of stuff. Ever been there? Why doesn't God do something? Why didn't he stop it from happening? This is why what we believe about the human condition is critical. The sin of Adam and Eve corrupted God's good creation. That one sin affected us all. What Adam and Eve did, they did knowingly, they did willfully, they did freely. It was the result of their God-given freedom. It was, God didn't program them to do what they did. It isn't God's fault. It isn't others' faults. And after God asks Adam the question, he poses a question to Eve in verse 13. He says, what is this you've done? She believed the lie. She gave into the deception and disobeyed. And she, like Adam, doesn't take responsibility either. Her answer to God's question is, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The woman you gave me, she's the problem. The serpent, he's the problem. He's the blame. The devil made me do it. The temptation of the serpent was not the cause of Eve's choice, simply the occasion for it. And for every person and every generation from that moment in the garden on, we who were made by God and were made for God find ourselves often running from God. And that's why we need an answer to the problem of sin and evil from outside ourselves. And so look with me in the New Testament book of Romans. i are not going to spend a lot of time here. You can leave your place there in Genesis 3 and go to the book of Romans chapter 5. It's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 5. And I want us to see a direct connection here in the little time that we have between what happened in Genesis 3 and the implications to all humankind since. Romans 5 verse 12 says... Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sinned. That's the legacy of the sin of Adam. We have all acquired the last name sinner the minute we were born. We're all linked to Adam. Adam's sin has affected us all. We now sin by the nature we were born with and by the choices we make. That's what sin is all about. Someone came home, my husband came home from church, and his wife didn't go, and she asked him, what would the the preacher talk about? And he said, sin? Okay, she asked, what did he say about it? And and he answered, well, you know, he's against it. (laughs) Well, I hope you get a little more out of this than just that this morning. What's the answer out of this predicament? What's the solution to this? Is there any hope for us sinners? Well, this is where the gospel comes in. The rest of the statement of faith, Cindy read it earlier. It says, only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. And we're going to look more closely at the saving work when we come to Article 5 on the work of Christ. But for now, I want us to notice verse 18 of Romans 5. Look at this. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass, Adam, was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness, Christ, was justification that brings life for all men. It's been said this way, the seriousness of our sinful condition demanded nothing less than God's saving work in Jesus Christ. And notice with me the middle of verse 20. But where sin increased grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, Jesus Christ came to be what we were meant to be. He is our only hope. He came to rescue us from the wrath of God that rightly stands over all of us in union with Adam. He came to reconcile us from enmity with God, from being alienated from God, from running from him, He alone can renew the divine image which was corrupted by Adam's sin. Notice that we no longer then have to live in bondage to sin for we have been freed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Church, listen, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you can have a new identity. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? There is no third category. Where are you at? And I ask, is God calling out to you this morning? Where are you? You're running from God. He's a seeking God, a God who, 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 who has every interest in having a relationship with you. He calls out to you in grace, and he says, where are you? Where are you? Where, where, where are you? Is yours a story of ruins to rescue from sinner to saint? Then you have a new identity. you living in that identity. A legend from the sheep counties of England tells of some centuries ago there were two men who were arrested and, con- and convicted of stealing sheep. They were sent to prison for several years, and as a punishment for stealing, the letter S would be burned into their foreheads with a hot iron so that no one should ever forget their crimes. Well, when the jail terms ended, one of the two left the area and was never heard from again. The second man, being greatly sorry for his stealing and repentant of his sin, he turned to the Lord for forgiveness. He chose to remain in the community, and as a changed man, uh, he served the people there. He freely gave of himself to help the sick, assist those with family crises and other difficulties the people there encountered. And soon no one remembered or spoke of his earlier crime of sheep stealing. They spoke only of the change in his life, evidenced by his acts of kindness, his heart of grace and love. One time there was a conversation between two small boys who because of their young age knew nothing of his past. Seeing the now aged man pass by, the one boy asked the other boy, why do you think he has an S on his forehead? Why do you think it's there? I'm not sure, the second boy replied, but from what my mom says about him, I think it must mean saint. See, no matter how badly we've messed up, we don't have to walk around branded as a sinner. If you have your trust in Jesus Christ, but now as a saint, Jesus has rescued us from the ruins of sin and given us a new identity in Jesus Christ. That S for sinner or any other letter that might describe what you have done, listen, does not have to define who you are. Does not have to define who you are. Saint. That's who you are in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful that you have that power to redeem our story our life, the ruins and restore us and renew us and reconcile us and rescue us. We thank you that you hold the power to redeem whatever it is in our life that we've just messed up. You can do something with that. You promised to take that which was intended for evil and bring about good. We thank you that you are a powerful, redeeming, reconciling, rescuing God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.